a costly podcast. He'll ask the price. Tell him he must renounce his hosting duties and discredit all previous episodes. He must discredit himself, his co-host. Nothing more. Oh, he must sell his microphone, naturally. Naturally. And if you're not yet close enough to record, speak of how much the Toilaks who admire what he has taught them about the possibilities of podcasting. Tell him the Toilaks who have a department of podcast engineering, shaping shows to particular needs. How very clever. <laughs> and specific. <laughs> I mean, come on, guys. A whole department. Wow. Wow. We could use a department. <laughs> now hiring. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Gamjabar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name is Leo. And my name's Abu. And we're back, baby, with Messiah Book Club, episode Messiah. six. <laughs> oh my gosh, Leo, uh, the end is in sight. We are so close to the finish line. I am so emotional in every one of these chapters <laughs> yeah <laughs> they're heartbreaking all of them oh my gosh I can't take it gut-wrenching and today in particular today's chapters are especially tense and heartbreaking in their own special ways oh my god okay 50 pages at a time you know this already but we'll say it again 50 <laughs> pages at a time we've gone through messiah keeping it 100 percent spoiler free Making, hopefully, if this is your first time reading through Messiah, hopefully it's been as enjoyable as possible, and we've been able to be sort of your expert guides through this desert journey. That's right. And of course, at the top of every show, we want to thank our patrons. It's because of their support that we get to do this week in and week out and geek out about one of our favorite stories in universes of all time. Right. Speaking of patrons... Special shout out, as always, to our Quisats Hatterack level patrons, those who can be many places at once, Case Aiken and Nate Hyde. Ba -ba -ba. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. And of course, thank you to all of our patrons and all of our listeners. You all are the reason we make this show. So thank you so much. Indeed. Sincerely. Another great way to support the show and uh, wear references that no one gets is visiting <laughs> gomjabarshop.com. We have merchandise, we've got shirts, we've got stickers, and almost none of them are, like, identifiably Dune. <laughs> <laughs> Again, as the person who designed, like, half of our merchandise, I like things that are aesthetically cool, that have a really cool story, that the design has a story, that you can feel good wearing, and then when people go, hey, that's super neat, you get to hit them with a 25-minute explanation <laughs> that goes into the deepest parts of Dune. It's my favorite. Right. And you have to whisper it in their ear. You cannot speak it like a normal person. You got to get in there. You just got to really, you just really got to get in there. You just got to really just right. say. Just, let me just really <laughs> talk right into their ear. Dom Jabbar is a great show. And you have to listen. Com, com Jabbar shop dot com.
Oh god, are we we're gonna pivot into ASMR, aren't we? That's where the money is. <laughs> Let us know how much you hated that by sending us an email at comjobarpodcast at gmail.com. That's our email address. We've had like six emails recently where people are like, I didn't know what email address to send it to. Gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com. That's the one. Bam. We say it all the time. <laughs> Gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com. First is time the place I've heard it. To reach out to us. Indeed, indeed. And with some of our housekeeping out of the way, let's get to some messages from listeners. That's right. So first off, we have an email from Ted asking about merch. Ted writes, just a quick email to inquire about when you might be releasing the Reverend Spice Daddy t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> that was basically the email. That was it. <laughs> Yeah. I loved it. To the point. To the point, Ted. To the point. To answer Ted's question, at the moment, we are focusing on getting through Messiah. These book club episodes are a ton of work. They take an enormous amount of time and effort, and that unfortunately leaves little room for other things. But we do plan to take a bit of a break before diving into the third book, Children of Dune. Right. So- in that interim, we'll definitely be knocking out some of those to-dos that have been building up on our list and designing new merch and releasing a new batch of cool merch for you to buy and show off and whisper ASMR into people's ears about. <laughs> that is high on the list. So keep an eye out for a merch drop in the next couple of months. We'll be sure to shout it out here on the podcast and all over social media, of course. But new stuff coming very soon. Indeed. Okay, let's move on to our next email. Speaking of shit that's building up on our to-do list that we have to get around to doing, this next email is from Maya Brown, who wrote to us about the 1984 David Lynch film. Maya writes, Hey, fellas. Enjoying the podcast as I'm a lifelong Dune fan. I saw the 1984 David Lynch film in 1984 at seven years old because my dad was a Dune fan and made my brother and I go with him to the movies. Nice. I was hooked. I didn't read Dune or Children of Dune or Dune Messiah until high school, but have read them a couple of times over now and have read some, but not all of the additional texts. I love the new movie, and it is clearly superior in many ways to the 84 film. However, I have a deep emotional attachment to the 84 movie and wonder if you all saw it in the 80s. Trust me, it slapped way harder back then. <laughs> And from the side comments, I get the feeling you guys can't stand it. I would like to have a breakdown episode of the 1984 movie, which is also, to be fair, an adaptation. What's your beef? <laughs> Keep up the good work, and thanks for listening. <laughs> First of all, I can't believe that we talked about Yodorowsky before talking about David Lynch. <laughs> we talked about the movie that didn't happen before the movie that did. It's insane. And... Honestly, yes, it is 100% an episode we plan to do in the future, but let's really briefly, quickly go over our thoughts now. And I'll go first. I think my thoughts are pretty brief, and I would like to refute one thing that Maya says. I'm generally pretty happy with the David Lynch movie as a work of art. Like, as a general work of art, I think there's a lot to love. There's a lot of spectacle, but obviously as an adaptation, I think it leaves a lot of room for improvement. 
And I think that it misses the mark in adapting like the point of Dune and adapting yeah. the core themes that make this story something that is so uh, timeless and something that is so worth dedicating years of your life to a podcast to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> so I love it as a work of art, but don't super care for it as an adaptation of the book. And, and I'll say, like, you can have lots of opinions about the movie, and I promise you Abu is about to share some of his. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but personally, I would take a film that's, like, chock full of crazy strong decisions, like artistic decisions, over just a thousand boring, shitty, cookie-cutter, Hollywood fair movies pretty much any time. Mm -hmm. Like, I get so tired of the same movie being made over and over again. Let's get some weird fucking movies. But that being said, like, my name is a killing word. No. <laughs> no, no, no. That's weird. That's weird and strange. Sound guns. Sound guns. Why? Why? <laughs> I ask a third time. Why? Also, milking cats. Why? Oh, my God. A fourth... A fifth. Why? <laughs> Just so strange. Uh, oh, and it's worth mentioning, neither Abu nor I saw it in the 80s, because I hate to admit this on mic, neither of us were alive yet. <laughs> but it is worth acknowledging, it did set the precedent for Dune as an adaptable, a somewhat adaptable IP, so I am grateful for it. And that's my little spiel. Abu, how much did you love it? <laughs> Oh, my gosh. First of all, I do want to say I'm a little flattered that we perhaps sound mature enough to be people who were born in the 80s yeah. uh -huh. or were young in the 80s. No, folks, we're children. I'm 10 years old. <laughs> Indeed. So I am flattered. Thank you for that, Maya. <laughs> I am probably usually the one making the snide remarks on our podcasts, and that's because... I unequivocally hated the movie. Uh, yes, maybe I am being too harsh on it from an artistic standpoint, but it's also not really my kind of film. Like, I don't watch experimental art house films. Right, right. And, you know, I, I have a very long list of issues that I had with it, but you already named a few. Some others I'd want to add are, I think it totally gets just so much wrong about what makes Dune, Dune. Like some of the themes of the book, the main messages of the book, right. it either ignores or completely botches. I know it's a product of the 80s, but it is just a movie filled with white people everywhere. <laughs> and that sucks to see, considering how much of the film is inspired and adapted from Muslim culture, Arabic culture, right. to not even see a single brown face in that movie. Beyond that, the Harkonnens, I find just so grotesque to the point of being comical. Like the, I think some scenes that was supposed to be like, oh, wow, look how bad the Harkonnens are. But I was too busy just laughing <laughs> at how dumb they were. So, yeah, uh, I mean, clearly you can you can tell I didn't like the movie. Uh, in fact, I have no desire to ever watch it again, which is. A bummer because we will be doing that deep dive episode <laughs> podcast. I'll, oh, you I'll will probably be have to watch it <laughs> scene by scene over again, pausing and replaying and quoting things from it as we dive deep into it. So I will unfortunately be doing that for all of you. That's how much we love you all listeners. But trust me, I will not enjoy it one bit. All of that negativity aside, though, I do want to sort of end this by saying that I am genuinely really happy that people like Maya exist who love and cherish the movie. Yeah. 
Totally. It honestly warms my heart to hear that going to this movie, whether her dad dragged her to it, which is what it kind of sounds like, or she went willingly. Either way, it sounds like it's a beautiful memory that she has with her father. And the movie has a special place in her heart, perhaps because of that. We get a lot of emails and messages from people that are like, my dad loved this, so I loved it. Yeah, like, totally. Dune dads is such a thing, you know? <laughs> like, there's a whole demographic of just Dune dads out there. You mean spice daddies? <laughs> spice daddies! <laughs> exactly. So, And, you know, we have some spice daddies in our audience as well. <laughs> and we appreciate them. And so... I just want to sort of end on that positive note. I don't want to be a total Debbie Downer <laughs> in response to Maya's email. Sure. I am really, really happy that she loves the movie. And I'm glad that it holds a special place in her heart and in her life. I mean, that's the joy of art, right? Like, it's subjective. And totally, we're all allowed to love it or hate it. And no one's wrong. No one's wrong for disliking a thing or liking a thing. So, hell yeah. So to wrap up our mailbag section today... Maya, Ted, thank you so much for your emails and your questions. A number of listeners have sent us emails along these lines asking us about the 1984 movie or merch or the board games or when we're finally going to do the sci-fi miniseries episodes we've been talking about. Right. And we just want to reiterate and confirm once again that do not worry. We see your emails. We see your messages. We will do those episodes after we wrap up Messiah. Can't wait. Seriously. <laughs> All right. And with that out of the way, we're going to take a very quick break, but stick around. When we're back, we're going to get into the summary of this week's reading. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back, folks. Let's dive into today's reading. So we start off with chapter 20. It has been a week since the stone burner incident. There's been a hustle and bustle of activity all week long, but things have finally settled down, and an awkward, tension-filled silence has fallen over the Imperial Keep. People are speaking in hushed whispers and corners. They're walking around quietly, trying not to disturb the peace. It's tense. And the topic of conversation on everyone's lips, of course, is Paul's quote-unquote blindness. Right. We also learned that Corba has been arrested for presumably being part of the Fremen conspiracy to take down Paul. Put a pin in that. We're going to be getting to that very soon. <laughs> so good. But first, we join Chani, who awakens to find Paul sitting next to her. And Paul, at this point, is more despondent and distant than ever. We've talked about how grappling with being the emperor, being the Kwisatz Haderach, have just crushed Paul, this is maybe the lowest he's been. Right. Paul tells her that soon they will make their way out into the desert, like she had asked, and she will give birth there. And he promises her that their child will rule an empire even greater than his. Yeah. And in response, 
I kind of got the sense that Chani is almost fed up with Paul's visions and all of this high-minded talk that he goes on and on about. We get this heartbreaking exchange back and forth between the two of them. Quote, We're here now, she protested, fighting a dry sob. And I feel we have so little time. We have eternity, beloved. You may have eternity. I have only now. But this is eternity. He stroked her forehead. She pressed against him, lips on his neck. The pressure agitated the life in her womb. She felt it stir. Paul felt it too. He put a hand on her abdomen, said, Ah, little ruler of the universe, wait your time. This moment is mine. End quote. So sweet. And also, a Zen Sunni philosopher would have a field day with that exchange. <laughs> Questions of eternity and now and where is the line? I mean, obviously, Chani's talking about Paul's prescience and all of that, but the reality of getting lost in future visions and not being present is a real consideration, you know? Absolutely. And, and um, something that I'm sure we can all identify with to some extent. Yeah. I'm on my phone all the time. I'm never present. <laughs> not once. I'm on my phone right now. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. Right. I'm scrolling through TikTok as I'm recording this. <laughs> This is just an absolutely heartbreaking exchange between the two of them. You can really yeah. feel how Paul is beginning to really lose himself in these visions, especially now that he has it turned on 24-7 in order to see. And Chani is just like, yo, we're having kids. Like, everything's really tense right now. Can you just, like, be here with me? Can you just be here right now? Like, stop looking at your visions for once. <laughs> And, of course, we know that he can't stop looking at them. He has to. He's locked in. We also get a shocking revelation this, in this moment that Chani is having not one, but two children. She's having twins. And she wonders why Paul continues to refer to their children as singular. He says, the child you have will rule an empire. Ah, little ruler of the universe. He's right, not saying rulers. Right. He's not saying children. And she wonders to herself that, A, it's weird that I've never brought this up with him. B, uh, it's probably okay. He knows everything, right? He's the Messiah. Yeah. He must know something. So he knows. He's got to know, right? Yeah. Gotta. <laughs> God, can you also imagine the fear? They've already lost a child. So I just imagine that there's also a lot of fear here. So she's not only like, wow, what a weird fucking coincidence that we haven't talked about this. But also, <laughs> ooh, hmm, maybe I don't want to bring it up because if it is important, he'll tell me. I trust him. I love him. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That fear, I'm sure, plays into it as well. The chapter then switches to Alia's perspective as she is getting ready to preside over Korba's trial. She heads down to the assembly hall and Korba is brought forward as a group of knaves take their seats in the gallery. Now, the knaves aren't exactly ecstatic that Alia is here instead of Muad'Dib. They expected their messiah to be here. Why is his sister in charge? Right. But she silences them with an angry retort. Quote, is it not Fremen law that a reverent mother presides when life and death are at issue? End quote. Yeah. Oh. And that kind of sets the tone for the trial, right? 
guys, we're not here to give him 20 years. This is life and death. What a savvy clapback. She's like, no, we might kill him today. And they're all like, oh, okay, fair enough. Continue. (laughs) My bad. Right. Savage stuff on brand for Alia. (laughs) The trial then begins, and she asks Stilgar to read aloud the many charges that are being pressed against Korba, which he does. And Korba, of course, proclaims that he's innocent. Quote, not by word or deed have I been traitor to my Fremen vows. I demand to confront my accuser, end quote. So he's out here claiming he's done nothing wrong. His hands are clean. What conspiracy? Also leaning hard on the Fremen qualities, right? And that's a big part of this. Like, so much of this is not only doing what he thinks will get him to be safe and, like, alive, but winning the favor and currying the favor of the gathered names. Because who the Fremen then support leaving the courtroom is also going to have ramifications. So everyone in this situation is kind of bound to this game of like, well, I am innocent, but let me make clear, I'm a Fremen. Y'all know me. And they're all like, yeah, we do know him. He is a Fremen. That's true. That's true. And it's a play. It's an act. So much of this. Yeah. That's a great observation, Leo. He is working his angles. Now to everyone's utter shock and awe, Paul enters the room with bombshell news. He just walks in and tells everyone that the Fremen conspirators have stolen a worm off Arrakis, which was part of their goal. Yeah. That's massive. That's huge. That's 400 meters of news. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. The peanut gallery at this point, starts whispering, you know? They're all talking about Paul's blindness. He doesn't have eyes. Yeah. Exactly. Uh Exactly. (laughs) And he shuts them down with almost as good a clapback as Ali is from earlier. Quote, Who says I'm blind? Paul demanded. He faced the gallery. You, Rajafiri? I see you're wearing gold today, and that blue shirt beneath it which still has dust on it from the streets. Oh, shit. You always were untidy. Oh, shit. <laughs> right. Roger Fury made a warning gesture, three fingers against evil. <laughs> Point those fingers at yourself, Paul shouted. We know where the evil is. <laughs> he turned back to Corba. There's guilt on your face, Corba. End quote. Holy <laughs> shit. I need to see Timothy Chalamet act the fuck out of this scene. Uh just ruined blackened pits for eyes <laughs> screaming point those fingers at yourself ah oh my god it's my favorite scene so good of a movie that isn't coming for years <laughs> yeah oh my gosh i loved it paul then turns his full attention to corba and grills him about his part in the conspiracy he tells corba that b has told them everything They know the names of the Fremen conspirators. And all throughout this exchange, Korba is cowardly. He's defensive. He does, however, demand to be judged by Fremen law. Right. And in an incredible flex, Paul appoints Stilgar as Korba's counsel and agrees. Sure, we will judge you by Fremen law instead of sentencing you to death here and now. This is, of course, 
all a sham. It is all an act by Paul and Stilgar. Interestingly, Alia was not in on the entire plan. Quote, You cooked this up between you? Alia demanded. Had I ordered Corba slain out of hand, the knaves would have understood, Paul said. But this formal procedure without strict adherence to Fremen law, they felt their own rights threatened. Which knaves were with him, Alia? End quote. So in addition to putting on this show to win over the knaves, what Alia has been doing and what she's basically been instructed to do using her Benny Gesserit observational abilities is to look at this gallery and suss out who is in support of Corba. Right. Alia is taking all of this data in to report to Paul. There are enemies within the Fremen ranks and Paul and company are here to clear house. The chapter wraps up then as Alia prepares to take the morning audience. Paul gives her that duty and walks away. <laughs> and Stilgar grabs Korba and is about to head out. But before he leaves, Stilgar turns to Alia and he comments about how odd it is that she seemed cut off by Paul's interactions with Korba and this whole play they put on. Right. And she tells him that she senses a dramatic change within him. Because in the trial, there was a moment where Alia turned to Stilgar at one point and questioned whether he was in on the conspiracy as well. Remember, she's observing everyone in the room. Yeah. It's part of her job to observe Stilgar as well. And there's been some doubt planted in her mind now. And I think there's a bit of miscommunication happening between Alia and Stilgar here because he then asks her whether she distrusts him and she reassures him that she has always trusted him. And to this day, she still does. But she adds, quote, you're preparing to disobey my brother. I can read it in you. I only hope it doesn't destroy you both. End quote. Mm. Oh my Woof. God. Yeah. That is some ominous foreshadowing, folks. Yeah. Well, that foreshadowing leads us into a frankly insane chapter. Chapter 21. Yeah. <laughs> we get oh boy. Hate the Gola and Bejaz the Dwarf. Hate is basically interrogating, interviewing, getting information out of Bejaz about his purpose as a Tleilaxu creation. And throughout this interaction, Bejaz is just 140% on brand with his just <laughs> insane riddles and vague kind of Zinsuni esque things. Like you can't really tell if he's spitting dope philosophy or if he's just fucking with hate. Now, throughout this section, Bejaz keeps repeating to hate that they are one and the same. Toilaxu creations built as tools against Paul. Hate is like, no, stop saying that. You're pissing me off, dude. He keeps trying to focus the conversation. He's like, are you a weapon against Paul? And Bejaz basically talks in circles and he's kind of poking fun at Paul and Alia and, and calling them, you know, he says they're the same and Overall, he's just very much pushing hate's buttons. We get this great exchange. Quote, All of us should pray. Do we not live in the shadow of the most dangerous creation the universe has ever seen? Now, the conversation switches gears, and they talk a little bit about hate's nature as a gola, and Bejaz keeps calling him Duncan Idaho. 
of course, hates like I'm not him. And we know from other chapters that this really does rub hate the wrong way. He wants those memories. He wants to remember. He wants to be Duncan Idaho, but he's not. And there's a lot of insecurity in hate as a character. And Bejazz is just poking that button over and over and over again. And then suggests, you know what? You have Duncan inside of you and you could awaken. You could awaken that Duncan Idaho who's sleeping, the full awareness of Duncan Idaho. And hate is like, that's never been done. And then Bejazz clearly demonstrates that he knows what he's doing when he shuts hate down, almost literally. He's kind of using this singing, humming, rhythm, speech style thing to collapse hate's breathing. Like hate is having trouble breathing. He's like having trouble standing. It's this insane effect that Bijaz is having on him. And Bijaz tells him his mission. He basically outlines it. Quote, One day, the emperor will come to you. He will say, she is gone. The grief mask will occupy his face. He will give water to the dead, as they call their tears, hereabouts. And you will say, using my voice, Master, oh master, end quote. And this is where the plan gets fucking crazy. Yeah. So Chani in this vision is dead. Hate will offer Paul a Tleilaxu bargain. We will make a gola of Chani. And you can live out your life together with your love, with your beloved, in exile, in exchange for giving up the throne. Oh, also, gotta discredit your godhood. Also, also, uh, oh right, all of your money. Just all of your money. It's fine. And, <laughs> right. and of course, the Air Jordans he took from Shaddam IV because oh, absolutely. they're not creased. They're, they're sick. <laughs> They've got the drip. Right. So that's insane. That's wild. I will say, though, fucking spot on of the Tleilaxu to spot the fact that Paul wants out. He wants exile. This is actually quite a tempting thing. He's fantasizing about this quietly when people think that he's furious and steaming. <laughs> it's so good of them. Like, it's so brilliant of them to include that in that initial bargain. But there is more. And this is really where the plots within plots within plots gets going. <laughs> yeah. Quote, He will be tempted. And in his distraction, you will move close. In that moment, you will strike. Two golas, not one. That is what our masters demand. End quote. Oh my God. That, this is why you never trust a Tleilaxu, folks. It's insane. Duncan Idaho, in his moment of hesitation, will kill Paul. And then the Tleilaxu will have perfect golas of not only Chani, but also the Kwisatz Haderach Paul. Oh my God. God of the universe. Yep. What a fucking play. Like <laughs> A puppet. The most powerful puppet. It's unbelievably ballsy of them. Yeah. Now, of course, it's a bad move to, like, outline every step of the plan to the fucking guy who's, like, <laughs> part of it yeah. and who's the whole time going, I'm not going to do that. You're crazy. B-Jazz is like, oh, also, by the way, you're going to forget everything until he says those words. And in a very big way, hate is the, as we learn in this chapter, hate is the goal that Bejaz has been aiming for this whole time. 
Bjazz has been seeking out a one-on-one conversation with with Hate. He gets it in this scene, and in having this moment with Hate, he basically loads Hate as a sort of weapon, and Hate is suddenly armed and ready to go. Oof. Such a wild chapter. Oh, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> Another chapter I can't wait to see on screen. Oh, Jason Momoa. It could be done in such a fun way. Jason Momoa, like, dripping sweat, cowed before this little man, just being tortured by the words, but then gasping. Ah, oh, so many good visions. Yeah. <laughs> could be so yeah, good. Leo you, Leo, you had me at Jason Momoa dripping sweat. <laughs> you didn't have to say anything past that. You had me at the first syllable of Jason's name. <laughs> all right let's continue on to chapter 22 hate watches as alia leaves her temple and he immediately immediately notices something is off about her so he's concerned and he follows her as it turns out alia has just moments ago consumed an absolutely lethal amount of spice melange in an attempt to make sense of the future and also to make sense of what Paul is up to, to make sense of his actions. It's clear from the trial that she is not 100% in on all of Paul's planning here. Right. There's actually an interesting note here about the Dune Tarot, something we talked about at the start of the book. Quote, This was the way to penetrate the fog spread over the future by the damnable Dune Tarot. A barrier existed. It must be breached. She had acted out of a necessity to see where it was her brother walked with his eyeless stride, end quote. She's desperate. There's also a lot of parallels in Alia's actions here, all the way back to the first book when Paul does something similar in taking the water of life and going into his Kwisatz Haderach time trip coma for three weeks. Yeah, great point. Alia is taking very similar steps here. Now, by the time Hate walks over to Alia, she is already starting to have some of the most intense visions of her life. Right. And Hate, understandably concerned. She ignores most of what he's saying and starts talking about how she is the product of a Bene Gesserit and she, on some level, understands their desire to keep this breeding program going. And she understands why. Paul and Alia's potential children are so important to that program and to the future of humanity. She also sees glimpses of her own child in these visions. One small caveat here is while she sees a future child of hers, she can't see who the father is. And Mari's really busy right now (laughs) and can't help. Right. Now, hate jumps into full-on mentat mode and hits her with some pure logic that is obviously not what she wants to hear, but he's like, what if you had a child with Paul? And Paul being a prescient being, perhaps the most powerful prescient being, of course he wouldn't show up in your vision or anyone else's vision. That's maybe the blind spot that you're seeing. Right. And that is obviously a horrific possibility. Hate is also really, really panicked in this moment. He keeps trying to get her to like come in the room and lay down, and he wants to go and get the medics. Things are not okay. She is having basically a near-death experience with these visions. 
And she continues to go on and on about what she is seeing. At one point, she points at the shield wall and says, look at it being destroyed. She's seeing it come down. And she, at one point, basically states what I think is a very core theme of the entire Dune saga. She says, quote, nature abhors prescience. Did you know that, Duncan? End quote. And we have touched on this idea before. Paul has also mused on this, that there is perhaps a power even beyond time, even beyond what he can see with his abilities, that controls the universe in a way that he cannot even influence, despite all his near-omniscient abilities. Here, Alia talks about nature, that there is some natural power in the universe that is even stronger than that. And this idea is even touched on in the little chapter excerpt at the start of this chapter. Quote, The sequential nature of actual events is not illuminated with lengthy precision by the powers of prescience, except under the most extraordinary circumstances. The oracle grasps incidents cut out of the historic chain. Eternity moves. It inflicts itself upon the oracle and the supplicant alike. Let Muad'Dib's subjects doubt his majesty and his oracular visions. Let them deny his powers. Let them never doubt eternity. End quote. Ugh. And that's capital E eternity, as in some sort of natural power that is even greater than Muad'Dib. Right. It's a really interesting idea that there is something even beyond Paul's control running the universe. And this is, Frank, getting deeply, deeply philosophical. <laughs> yeah. Now, Hate is finally successful in getting Alia into her bed. He rushes off to get the doctor. And in a brilliant bit of writing, we see Alia's reality start to blend in and out of her visions. And she's unable to tell what is now, what's past, what's future. It's all becoming one blurred thing. Quote, the bed flowed with many bodies, all of them her own. Time became a multiple sensation, overloaded. It presented no single reaction for her to abstract. It was time. It moved. The whole universe slipped backward, forward, sideways. End quote. Ugh. <laughs> so cool. Imagine that. Imagine having your sense of reality just unmoored in that way. Now, the doctor has arrived and tends to her. He puts a tube down her throat. Presumably they're going to do something like pump her stomach and get this deadly melange out of her. And Hate sits nearby and he's concerned. And it's at that moment, seeing his concern, that Alia finally recognizes Hate loves her. The Gola <laughs> is in love with me. Yeah, he was subtle about it, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, the kiss you the wanted. Ki <laughs> the kiss you wanted. She's like, maybe he might like me. Come on, Alia. Jesus. Come on, Alia. Millions of lives inside of you. You can't identify a crush. Right. He has a crush on you, girl. She's, she asks her other memories. She's like, does he like me? And in unison, a million past lives are like, we don't know. <laughs> a, a cacophony <laughs> of confused past lives. He's so hot. He, no way. We're not in his league. <laughs> so in this moment, she recognizes his love for her. 
the doctor's also sort of wrapping up and he has the audacity, <laughs> nay, the temerity to chide Alia for consuming too much spice. And I found this so funny. She's like, you don't tell me what to do. Fuck off. And the doctor's like, I'm telling your brother. And then storms out of the room. <laughs> so good. Oh, my God. So good. Also, shouts to our boy, Gary Goldman. <laughs> Nay, the temerity. <laughs> so good. Let's wrap up this chapter. We end with Hate and Alia alone in the room. She is slowly starting to recover from these visions. And we get this very emotional moment that really, really affected me. Tears running down her face. Alia admits to Hate, quote, If I could only burn this thing out of me. I didn't want to be different. I wanted to be able to laugh. But I'm sister to an emperor who's worshipped as a god. People fear me. I never wanted to be feared. I don't want to be part of history. I just want to be loved. And to love. End quote. Ha. My God. Hmm. My therapist will be hearing about this. <laughs> Ugh. I'm going to need a minute to recover from that <laughs> quote, so please take the next chapter, Leo. Okay, I got you, bud. Let's get into 23. <laughs> we are back at Siege to Burn. As Paul promised, they made their way to the desert, but Johnny's kind of feeling a little strange. Things are not quite right. And she asks, quote, why are we here? End quote. Can you, can you do that in your, in your Seinfeld voice, please? Why are we here? <laughs> <laughs> What's the deal with being here? <laughs> you like spice? <laughs> It'll never not kill me. I love that. Things are not quite right. Jerry Seinfeld impressions aside, things are not quite right. <laughs> She's looking over this desert, this siege she loves. She's thinking this whole time, oh, that's where, the, uh, that's where I caught scorpions as a kid. Like, this is where I grew up. Why is it weird? Why do I feel strange about this? Yeah. And part of it's certainly Paul. Like, Paul's being super fucking strange. She loves him so much, but also brought with them just the insanest group of people. He's like, yeah, you know, the group that we should all go to this cave with. B-Jazz, your friend B-Jazz, right? You love him. Hate, <laughs> hate's great. He's kind of spooky, too. Edric, ugh, we all love Edric. Edric's great. Fishman Edric, he's the best. Moheim, ah, oh, she's a charmer. She's a charmer. Lykna, that weird fucking girl who's like kind of weird and walking strange sometimes. Stilgar, that makes sense. That makes sense though. Hurrah, we love hurrah. We stand hurrah. Irulan, Alia, and you know, all of the palace assistants, it seems like. <laughs> a whole entourage. It's insane. We're building up to something here. Chani is not really cognizant of all of that. Like, we know from the very earliest chapters that she knew Irulan was up to stuff. But Moheim, Edric, all of that stuff is it's just not on her plate. And she finds herself slipping into some of that melancholy that Paul has been so accursed with the last few months, it seems like. We actually have this little quote, and it's just so heartbreaking. It's so sad, but I think it's worth sharing. Quote, Hawks appeared in the cleft, 
where she stood, seeking safety from the wind. They were brown as the rocks and with scarlet in their wings. She felt her spirit go out to them. They had a place to hide. She had none. End quote. Oof. When you are like the love of the emperor of the universe, and you're like, ah, jealous of that bird. Jealous of that bird, though. That bird's got it pretty sweet. Uh-huh. It's a dark moment. I'm no relationship expert. Yeah. But if you're like, I wish I was that bird <laughs> instead of in this relationship, <laughs> get out. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's, you might, you sound like an expert in that moment because that's good advice. Right. Now they see, she sees in her Fremen way, a Coriolis storm brewing in the distance. And hate is like, ah, oh, there's a storm. <laughs> you should be careful. <laughs> Coriolis storms can strip bone from, and she's like, fucking guy come on literal mansplaining here <laughs> hate the playlaxu golas like hey let me explain to you fremen woman what a desert storm can do to the human body <laughs> quote it'll shred the flesh from your bones he said as though he needed to explain such a storm to her <laughs> end quote <laughs> i love that quote they gave me a good chuckle it's so funny i bet he sits with his legs fully apart just taking up so much space oh, oh my god he's a spreader <laughs> he's a spreader folks but nevertheless she's like listen he's clearly genuinely concerned for me okay whatever we'll get inside so she asks hate you know where's paul and hate basically says oh paul's out doing hot emperor shit like he's got so much <laughs> so much on his plate and she basically says yeah that makes sense that makes sense. I saw all of the attendants, right? Quote, yes, I understand. I came with that swarm too. Recalling the flight from Arakeen, she admitted to herself now that she had not expected to survive it. This, this is wild. This is one of my favorite passages. <laughs> Continuing the quote, Paul had insisted on piloting his own thopter. Uh... Eyeless, lest you forget, <laughs> eyeless, he had guided the machine here. After that experience, she knew nothing he did could surprise her. <laughs> End quote. Oh my god! Well, we only have a moment to enjoy that insane thought because, ah, there the babies are coming. <laughs> she feels the pain. Hate roars out to get some support. And support appears. Again, it does, does technically pay to be the emperor's concubine. Yeah, true. And she's being taken care of, which is great. Hate is kind of pushed to wait outside, and he kind of finds himself examining his own panic. Yeah. At first, he's like, oh, Chani might die in childbirth, and that's like an alarming thought, because Chani's wonderful. 10 out of 10. She's the best. But he knows there's more to it, so he does some, like, aggressive mentat calculation. He really digs deep into his own psyche, into his own emotions and his own thoughts. In a splitting moment of fear, he realizes the dwarf, be jazz. Put something inside of me. Quote, a compulsion. I've been rigged with a compulsion. He's discovered the sort of like buried weapon. And a nearby courier is like, uh, what? Did you, did you say to me? You said something? And hate, not even fucking looking at him, is like, yeah, I, I said everything. Get out of here. <laughs> I'm Duncan fucking, I know I'm, I'm a hate. <laughs> I'm so much hotter than you. The courier's like, true. <laughs> okay. So funny. Incredible. Now I will, I will point out here. 
it's totally possible. Just want to put this out there. It's totally possible that Tleilaxu trained him as a mintat partially so that he would find the compulsion partially oh to give him God. an escape route. Damn. It's dope. This book is fucking cool. Leo, you just blew my mind. I just thought of that. <laughs> All righty, folks. So that's the summary of today's reading. <laughs> what an incredible <laughs> set of chapters. My God. Yeah. Full of heartbreak, full of terror, full of foreshadowing. Ah, we are setting up the climax of this book. Things are coming to a head. I cannot wait to see what happens next. What an amazing set of chapters. Yeah. Now, Next up, we are going to jump into our key takeaways. But before we do, as always, we're going to take a short break. But don't go anywhere. When we come back, we'll dive into our takeaways and our spice morsels. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody. Let's get into the takeaways. Okay, takeaway number one, laws, government, and religion. What are those? Those aren't in Dune. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Just <What>? kidding. <laughs> I'm as baffled and astounded as Alia realizing Duncan likes her. Anyway, there's so much politics in these chapters, and it really is worth breaking down some of the kind of political commentary that Frank is kind of exploring through these characters and through the story as a whole. Yeah, definitely. So let's start with the first chapter of today's reading in that moment where Paul responds to Chani, telling him that he should express his love for his subjects. <laughs> Paul's response <laughs> great. is chilling. Quote, <laughs> you can't build politics on love. <laughs> People aren't concerned with love. It's too disordered. They prefer despotism. <laughs> I can't even say that with a straight face. Too much freedom breeds chaos. We can't have that, can we? And how do you make despotism lovable? End quote. He's like, no, really, I'm asking. Holy shit. How do you make it lovable? I'm trying. Right. <laughs> it's a cry for help. Losing my eyes, does that help? She's like, no. <laughs> Oh, my God. Wild stuff. Yeah. Wild. It, it's such an out of character thing for our quote unquote hero to say, right? Like we don't we know that Paul Atreides is the son of Leto Atreides. He's, he's an Atreides. He's, he's an honorable, upstanding person. He's a good guy through and through. What an absolutely bonkers, crazy thing for him to say. It's so honestly Machiavelli of him. I remember yeah. reading this oh, chapter last yeah. week and texting you and being like, <laughs> "Yeah, did Paul just go full Machiavelli? It's better to be feared than respected? It's wild. It's word for word a Disney villain speech. And Johnny recognizes what's happening. Paul stuck in his own, like he's kind of being melodramatic, also maybe just saying the words he has to say. But man, she's like, you're not a despot. He's like, yeah, 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 I know. But still, it's so much. Uh, 
And at this point, there is no sham. There's no faking it. He is outright just calling himself a despot. Yeah. And we've said this many times at this point, but it bears repeating. Paul is absolutely disgusted with his own rule. Oh, true. Yeah. There are two forces at work within him. One is what his father and his mother instilled in him, the Atreides person, the moral code that he has always lived by. And the other is Muad'Dib, the Fremen, the Messiah, who must rule with an iron fist. And it's tearing him apart. He's racked with guilt and anger and hopelessness, frankly. Yeah. But speaking politically, I think sort of talking meta, I do want to, with these quotes, step out of the book a little bit and try and figure out what Frank is trying to say. Yeah, yeah. I, I think to me, this quote reads as a warning against charismatic leaders who project this idea of love and Paul slash Frank himself saying, no, 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 politics can't be built on charismatic leaders. It will fall apart. Yeah. I mean, it's almost the follow-up to don't trust charismatic leaders from Dune. It's like, and the ones who seem infallibly charismatic are perhaps even the most twisted because they are lying about the nature of their rule. Yeah. Okay, let's continue. Paul is still talking with Johnny and she says, no, you're not a despot. What are you talking about? Your laws are just. You care for your people. And he responds with another banger, folks. Quote. This one slaps. <laughs> I want this one tattooed across my chest. Same. Quote. Law, our highest ideal and our basest nature. Don't look too closely at the law. Do, and you'll find the rationalized interpretations, the legal casuistry, the precedence of convenience. You'll find the serenity, which is just another word for death. End quote. Ah, that last <laughs> Oh line. my God. It's all the way back to him scolding the navigators, saying, you yeah. chose, oh. you chose complacence. You chose like the easiest path. You cowards. That is the same as death. He's railing against law. Johnny's like, oh, you've got good laws. And he's going, no, laws are the means to killing yourself through complacency and serenity and peace. And yeah, the alternative to that is chaos, but it's chaos that embraces actually loving and being loved and it's just it's fascinating to see this sort of web that he's weaving with his philosophies yeah it's such a great quote and while i think you're correct that it is like a takedown of laws i also think there's a side to it where paul is championing laws as a good thing he says law our highest ideal and i think again getting a little like philosophical an ideal is usually something you will never actually achieve right it's something you continue to strive for over and over and over again sure and the way i interpreted this was there's two ways to see laws there's laws that are enacted and then questioned and if used correctly and questioned often those laws can be effective at governing society. But the flip side of that is that even the most well-intentioned of laws can, like you were saying, 
lead to this complacency and this stagnation when they become a crutch, when they become an excuse by bad faith actors. And as we know in the Dune universe, stagnation equals death. If you are not questioning the status quo, if you are not continuing to move forward and grow and embrace chaos, you are hurtling humanity towards its ultimate demise. That's always been Frank's thesis in these stories. Yeah. I mean, that's 100% correct. But I also will point out ideals, you're right, are something we strive for. They're something we choose. They're something we set our sights on. And they're something Mm -hmm. we elevate as that is what we should strive for. And part of this desperation may be recognizing that laws are one of our ideals, our highest ideal. How sick is that? That we have set that as an ideal, that we set law and legality as an ideal like that's so fucking twisted we are so backwards as a species Mm. oh wow yeah all right one other thing we wanted to talk about in this takeaway is that moment from alia's perspective when she is getting ready to go to corvus trial (laughs) yeah she sees this letter from their mother and this is one of the very few times jessica is ever mentioned in this entire book and this letter, folks, is perhaps the most scathing Yelp review in history. <laughs> it's amazing. We learn that not only has Jessica refused to allow Kaladin to become a stop on the Hudge, the religious pilgrimage that all of Paul's followers undergo, right. she, in these letters, is also straight up shitting on Paul's rule and government. Here's some of what she wrote. Quote, you produce a deadly paradox. Government cannot be religious and self-assertive at the same time. I see the day coming when ceremony must take the place of faith and symbolism replaces morality. End quote. Mm. <laughs> In this letter, my interpretation is that Jessica is basically stating that Paul's religious despotic rule will crumble in on itself eventually. And this, of course, is an idea that has been brought up many times in this book, and we have discussed it on many occasions on this podcast, the finite nature of power and charismatic rulers. Right. Jessica herself is like, what you are doing is not sustainable and will not work. You cannot make yourself a god and intend to rule the universe. It's such a good point, and it's a great counterpoint to what Paul's doing and how he's like living and governing. But it's also so hollow because it's coming from the Benny Gesserit who like she, I don't know, just so much of her teachings and her, everything she's saying, he knows. I see this as Jessica's trying to be involved, but clearly is not having any huge impact on the proceedings because she just doesn't fucking get it. The universe is slipping sideways, Jessica. Yeah. You don't understand. You have a Mai Tai in your hand. You're on the beach of Caliban. <laughs> you don't get what it's like to be the Kwisatz Haderach. She's like, I don't think you should do this. Paul's like, you know what, Mom? Neither do I. All right? Surprise. <laughs> yeah. We're in agreement, Mom. Why are we arguing? We agree. <laughs> Why are we shouting? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're totally right. To some extent... This is beyond Jessica's grasp. She is not the Kwisatz Haderach. She is not seeing even a fraction of the visions that both her children are. 
Paul and Alia are seeing some crazy futures and their actions speak to the desperation that both of them are feeling. They both re realize it. They both recognize it, that this world is crumbling around them. And to wrap up this first takeaway sort of about politics and what Frank is saying in his messages here, to me, so much of this book is this slow-mo political train wreck happening in real time. Like we're on this journey watching Paul's rule, Paul's godhood crumble around him. And the, his empire is clearly starting to come apart at the seams. And through this story, Frank is very much making a political statement that this type of rule, this type of government, this type of leader is not what humanity should aspire to. This should not be our ideal. Right. So good. Man. Okay. Well, after that conversation, let's talk about BJS. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really excited to dive into BJS because if you think about it, he is this like seemingly minor character who shows up like <laughs> right. way at the end of the book here, the 11th hour, like a wrecking ball. He came in like a wrecking ball. <laughs> yeah, he's great. He's like right. him and Miley Cyrus both. <laughs> BJS, you might have forgotten, but he was on the Disney Channel. He was actually <laughs> one of the hosts of the Disney Channel. It's easy to forget, but honestly, right. what a career. In this chapter with hate, it's clear that this like seemingly insignificant character is quite significant. And the things that he says are sometimes very clearly just like one-off kind of pivots of like Zensuni logic. But some of the times he's kind of hinting at these truths that I think are quite poignant. So I want to jump to today's section and I look, look at his conversation with hate. The conversation is fun. And I do love, as I pointed out earlier, that hate as a Zensuni philosopher is just getting shook by like Bejaz's teasing <laughs> and jokes and jives like Bejaz is clearly pushing his buttons and it's working and it's hilarious yeah Bejaz is like a level 12 Zensuni philosopher <laughs> and hate never made it past like the sixth level exam but he's got like level 12 confidence and this is really shaking him that he's being outclassed <laughs> totally that's so perfectly said so looking at some of these quotes quote in truth emperor and sister are one person back to back, one being, half male and half female, end quote. Now, for me, again, this might be a little bit my interpretation, but this really does call to mind that sort of Quisatz Hatterach explanation that we got from the first time that Paul came out of the coma, this gendered duality. Uh, you know, he's talking about the giver and the taker. You know, brother and sister, Paul and Alia, are at that genetic crossroads of Quisatz Hatterach. Jessica made the call. She was like, yo, my son might be the Kwisatz Haderach. Then she also had a daughter. And Ali is no less Atreides and Harkonnen than Paul is. So right. that they have these pressing powers and that they have all of these things in common, it's worth remembering that they are both kind of Kwisatz Haderachs. We actually got an email about that today. And I responded with like a four-page dissertation. It was great. <laughs> so moments later, we get this quote. All of us should pray. Do we not live in the shadow of the most dangerous creation the universe has ever seen? Their own mother refuses to live on the same planet with them. End quote. Uh, that's a savage, <laughs> savage burn. 
fucking calling them out and pointing out <laughs> accurately that Jessica's like, fuck this. I'm going to Caledon. I've got my ties on the beach. Gurney, come with me. Amidst this kind of poetic speech, this is like shockingly on the nose. Again, this is one of these moments where B-Jazz just says a thing very coherently that is also reminding us that no matter how we feel about Paul and Alia, they are not saviors. They are not heroes. They're dangerous. They're forces of nature that their mother is terrified of, their own mother. Right, right. Again, this book is a warning against rulers like Paul and Alia. Yeah. And despite our inclination to want to paint them as heroes, despite the fact that they are the protagonists of this book, they are still not an ideal that we should be striving for. And to your point earlier about how B-Jazz cuts through the bullshit while wrapping it in talking in bullshit, here, he is just being very clear. Yeah. Do we not live in the shadow of the most dangerous creation the universe has ever seen? Paul Atreides is the result of a 90-generation-long breeding program. He is a dangerous creation. And I love that about B-Jazz so much. When you really try to like wade through his Zen Sunni philosopher bullshit, he says stuff like this. Stuff that, frankly, everyone else in this universe, everyone else in Paul's empire would be too afraid to say out loud for fear that, like our boy Pranzo, they'd be slapped in chains <laughs> uh, and executed by the Kizarate. BJS don't give a fuck. BJS says it all. <laughs> uh, I love it. It's so good. That's such a great point. I love comparing him to Bronzo because it's so true. Kind of wrapping up this takeaway. He has an aside. He's given hate this mission. He's like, this is what you're going to say word for word. But then he like gets distracted from his mission of imprinting hate with his kill orders. And he's like, oh, just a moment. Quote, poor Bejazz, who has no mind. Poor Bejazz, a drum stuffed with messages, an essence for others to use. Pound on Bejazz and he produces a noise. End quote. Oh, my God. Like, reminder. Bejazz is a human distrance. He is literally a carrier of messages. This is shockingly literal. Like, this is genuinely him bemoaning, I am a vessel for messages, for other people. Other people have their ends, their plans, their plots. Here I am with no mind, no agency, no ability to choose, no ability to think. Yeah. Bejazz is, like so many characters wrapped in others' planning. These huge Mm -hmm. organizations that are planning and scheming. And as he's pointing out here, he's like, I mean, he says, no mind. But really, as we're looking at complacency and action and peace and tranquility as a counter to decision and moving forward and acting and choosing, he is unable to choose his own destiny. And how sad is that? It's tragic. This is not tragic him triumphing over hate this is him succumbing to the same plans that anyone's going to succumb to it's right beautiful and in particular the same plans that hate has been programmed with b jazz has also been programmed to do this right and i liked this humanization of b jazz he is such a late game character that we perhaps don't have a moment to stop and think wait this is a 
person. Yeah, right? totally. He's not some plot device. He's not some Tleilaxu tool. This is a person whose agency, like you're saying, was taken away, and he's fully aware that his, this is his role. He is simply here to activate hate in this plot that the Tleilaxu have cooked up. And I loved this aside, that in the middle of doing the thing that he was made for, <laughs> yeah. he has a moment of hesitation and a very human moment of self-pity. Poor Bjaz, stuffed with messages. Pound on Bjaz, and he produces noise. That's all I was meant to do. Yeah. Tragic is the right word for it. Finally, I just want to highlight the best thing that Bjaz says. Hands down. <laughs> Hands down. About Duncan Idaho. Quote, Duncan Idaho, killer extraordinary, lover of many women, swordsman, <laughs> soldier, Atreides field hand on the field of battle, Duncan, Idaho. End quote. Oh my snaps, God. Snaps all around. Oh my God. Beat poetry at its finest, folks. Lover of many women, indeed. <laughs> Duncan, Idaho. Indeed. Killer extraordinaire in bed. Oh, kill it. Yeah, all of those were sex euphemisms. <laughs> oh, yeah. S- swordsman, this- soldier. <laughs> Duncan, okay. Idaho, just a euphemism for sex, sex. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, I love that uh, B-Jazz is also in the Stan Duncan camp. <laughs> He's like, I don't even know if this is true, but looking at you, going to go out on a limb. Lover of many women. <laughs> yep. Amazing. And with that very strange takeaway out of the way, let's take a quick break. One last break before we wrap up this episode with our spice morsels hot from the oven. Get your appetites ready, folks. We're almost there. Stick around. Welcome back, everyone. Let's round out this monstrosity of an episode. Yes. With a couple of yummy, yummy spice morsels. Mm, so good. First up, we have Umbu Siege. So as Alia is... Marking the knaves who doth protest too much. Shakespeare. In that gallery during the trial, we get this sentence. Quote, The names carried pieces of dune in them. Umbu siege, Tasmin sink, Habar's gap. End quote. Tasmin sink and Habar's gap seem to be one-offs here. There wasn't too much detail on those that we could find. Umbu siege actually does play a significant role. And it plays a role in... One of our favorite characters' lives. Stilgar. Yeah. According to the Dune Encyclopedia, Stilgar was born in 10,141 AG, and he was raised in Umbu Siege. Hey. So our favorite little navy boy, <laughs> before he was a nabe, just a boy, grew up in this siege. And at the time, before he got the name Stilgar, he was known by his birth name, Tuan. Cool. Cool. He obviously at some point left Umbu Siege, and according to the encyclopedia, it was around the age of 16, around the time when he met Pardo Kynes, who then introduced him to Siege to birth. Right. And the rest, of course, we all are very familiar with. The rest is history. This does make us wonder, though, if in that room during the trial, Stilgar has feelings here about a nabe of Umbu Siege perhaps being implicated as part of this conspiracy. Right. This could be a nabe that he grew up with 
or at the very least knows of or has heard of. This is his hometown, his home siege. And this is perhaps a name that he knows. Imagine what it feels like to realize that someone that you know is betraying your Messiah is in on this conspiracy. There's some potential turmoil within Stilgar here. Crazy. Yeah. We have one chonky morsel next, and then a tiny bonus morsel. And that'll be our episode. So let's get through this one. Alia, a.k.a. Hot the Fish Monster. (laughs) (laughs) We get this quote from B-Jazz, and he's saying this to hate. Quote, they call her Hot, H-A-W-T, the Fish Monster on the Outworlds, end quote. And good lord, that sounds dumb. That sounds real stupid, said out loud. Almost as bad as hate. (laughs) The Dude Encyclopedia gives us some extra context, and honestly, I thought this was so cool. So let's get into it. To start off, what you need to know is there's a planet called Humidus, based on the word humid, and it's a planet covered in oceans. On Humidus is the Cult of Hot, H-A-W-T. Incredible. Now, the Cult of Hot worships Hot. And Hot, H-A-W-T, is a shy Halud-like sea serpent, legendary sea serpent, with connections to the biblical Leviathan. Oh my God. Now, keep in mind, all of these worlds, all of these planets are in our future. So this kind of recursion of mythical things, like Leviathan, is likely. And there's a lot in the Dune Encyclopedia about how shy Halud is referenced as sort of Leviathan from, I think, the book of Job, from the Bible. Anyway. So already, I thought that was pretty neat. I was like, hey, that's pretty cool. Paul is the Messiah, the Mahdi, embodying the will of Shai Halud. And then Alia is the similar but different ocean-dwelling Hot, the sea serpent, capturing that kind of same but different quality of these Atreides siblings. Yeah. It's fun. It's cool to see that kind of texture of the universe. Wow. That was a lot. (laughs) <laughs> it's cool to see how deep this goes. And if you're wondering if that was deep enough, the answer is no, folks. Nope. Bonus morsel. Gamjabar. <laughs> Gamjabar, baby. baby. There's more. So let's end this episode on a bit more about hot. Yes. Recall the weirding room from the first book. It's a room full of plant life, exotic flowers, exotic plants within Arakeen Palace. Right. And Jessica finds a note from a fellow Benny Jesuit, Margot Fenring, which could seemingly imply that Margot was the one who had this room installed when her and Count Fenring ruled here from Arakeen Palace. But according to the Dune Encyclopedia, someone named Simpo, who was an early governor of Arrakis, actually had that room built as a bridal present to his fourth wife, who came from Humidus. Hey. The planet Humidus. Humidus. You know where that is. <laughs> yeah. We just learned about it. And Sippo's fourth wife's name is, brace yourself, folks, Hatina. H A W T I N A. God, what a sexy name. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So, to sum that up, Jessica found Margot's note in Hatina's room. And years later, Jessica's own daughter is then compared to the deity Hot that Hatina is named after. We have come full circle, folks. Ah, uh, it's so incredible, complicated, 
but I love it. <laughs> wow. And there's also a great name for any anyone having a daughter soon. Yeah. Hatina. Solid. I'm going to name H-A-W-T. my daughter Hatina, <laughs> and then I'm going to name my son Hatina, and I'm going to get my name changed to Hatina, and it's going to be great. <laughs> what a great name. <laughs> love it. And with Hatina, we come to the final stretch, folks. We've made it. <laughs> We've done it. The next episode, all you have to do is finish uh-huh. Dune Messiah. <laughs> all the way to the final page, friends. Read the rest of it. We're doing it. Hey. We're completing the book. Listen, enjoy. Enjoy it. Seriously. My God, what a book. Yeah. Get ready. Can't wait to talk about these final chapters. They're so good. Buckle up, folks. Buckle up. Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic. So help spread the word of Mwadib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lord Party Podcast Network on lordparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, he who controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the golden path. Silly. I, lo- I love those cold opens we do. I hope people appreciate them. No one has ever once written an email about them. So <laughs> yeah. part of me wonders if like, people just skip past yeah, all just, of that. God, this fucking thing again. I hate these guys. <laughs> guys, we need your validation. Email us. Do you like those cold opens? Email. We work so hard on those. Please. Please.